uh, pursue your mission in the world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so grab your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 3. We're making excellent time. That was a joke. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. I almost did, just so you know, a chapter and a half tonight. Because it all kind of went together. But instead of doing it all, I just backed up and only did the opening paragraph of the argument. So I figured it was more important for it to make sense than for us to do it all at once. So as we get ready for this, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to do 1 through 6. Let's uh, remind ourselves about what's happened in Hebrews. So let's start with the big context. Why did Hebrews get written? simpler. Who was Hebrews written to? Hebrews. To Hebrew people, to <laughs> Jews. Um, what kind of Jews in particular? Jews. Christian Jews. Jews were being persecuted because by Jews. The Christian Jews were being persecuted by non-Christian Jews to get them to do what? Come back to Judaism. Right, so go back to Old Testament religion. No Jesus, no New Testament. That was the, the thrust behind their persecution. And so, so far, the author of Hebrews, he's made several smaller points, but what's the basic, if you were just going to summarize so far in two chapters, his argument for why we shouldn't go back to the Old Testament, what would it be, Ed? Well, the um, basic argument is that there, is no, there, wasn't, there wasn't any fruit in the, New Test, in the Old Testament, but there is fruit in the New Testament, and once you get the New Testament, you can't go back. Okay. Anybody want to add to that? That's pretty good. No, sir. Jesus is better. <laughs> Abby said the fruit in the Old Testament wasn't there. There's fruit in the New Testament. Once you get the New Testament, you can't go back anyway. Anybody add or? Basically, Jesus is better than anything else in terms of an awesome Jesus is better. So the super simple definition is, well, Jesus is better than what came before. So, of course, uh, that's what we would want. So his specific argument, though, Started with angels. What, what what was the deal with the angels? Do you remember? Jesus um, is, is, is greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. Why why did that matter in the end? Do you remember? Get more nuanced now. I know, but I All right, so he, he he went lower than the angels. Is he still lower than the angels? No. No, he ascended higher than the angels. Um, what did he accomplish then? Salvation for us. So there's a glory that wasn't there before. Understanding. And understanding in what way? He knows what it feels like to be human. So there's a relatability we gained with Christ because of his incarnation. Now we have a high priest who relates to us. Um... So we have a high priest who's both like us, but also one who's not like us. And what's the way he's not like us? He's God. He's God. He's perfect. He's capable. All right, so we transition slowly from comparing Jesus to angels to comparing Jesus to Moses. So to make sense of the next chapter and a half, you have to really understand what's going on with Moses. Now, some of this... Um, could be for you at this point basic knowledge, but I don't want to assume that. So let's recap just the basic narrative of what Moses did. 
because this is going to be the paradigm. Um, this is going to be the analogy, the metaphor, the framework for how the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus. If you know what Moses did, Jesus is just doing everything the same except better. So we need to have a good understanding of that framework. So do you remember the Old Testament thing where we, we made the map? Not the scale. What is it? Does that look like a map to you, Joanne? No, it looks no, like a balloon. Looks like a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Waves. Is that helpful? No, it's better. Not at all. <laughs> water. This is water. This piece is water. It's called the Mediterranean Sea. So what country is right here? And that Y is my terrible attempt at drawing what? Nile. Nile River, exactly. And this is the what sea? Red, Red sea. sea. It's like a peace sign. I don't know. It's just fingers that? holding up. Also water. Does that help at all? Yeah. Okay. Okay. This area is what kind of terrain? Desert. As well as this area. Same thing. What is this particular piece of land and why is it important? It's Israel. Which it's one? Israel. Promised land, key lingo. What other words it's called throughout the Bible? Canaan. Canaan, the earlier name. Um, it's part of the Fertile Crescent, if you've ever heard that expression. And this is, we're going to call it the Promised Land. Okay. Or this, Promised Land. There's also a sense in which this is heaven. We sing songs about crossing Jordan's stormy banks, right? Well, that's what Israel did. They crossed Jordan's stormy banks. But we don't mean literally. How do we mean it when we sing that song? Yeah, and go to heaven. So the promised land and heaven are, like, related. They're not literally the same thing yet, but they literally will be the same thing. Are connecting dots? Where will heaven be in the end? On earth. On earth, but where? There, in Jerusalem. Our new Jerusalem will come down to this literal location, this literal place. Do I? On a beach? Yes. <laughs> Except, depends on how literal we read Revelation, you'll be disappointed because it says there's no more sea. <laughs> but I think that's a metaphor. I think there will be. But that's a different story. Different day. A new one. There's a crystal sea somewhere. Okay. okay. There we go. All right, so Egypt. Promised land. I'm going to call this wilderness. All right, so this whole kind of area we're calling wilderness. Are right, you with me? So here's the basics of the story of Moses. The story of Moses is one of the earlier portions of God's people's story. The only portion earlier than that would be Abraham and his sons. And then before that, we're getting into, there's not even a nation of Israel. It's just some ancient, ancient stories. But God's people found themselves in Egypt. They've been turned into slaves. They cry out to God, and this is where Exodus picks up. And how does God answer their cry? He sends a baby, and that baby is named 
Moses. Moses. Moses is put into the Nile River, if you remember, yeah. and ends up floating up to whose house? Pharaoh's house, and he grows up in Pharaoh's house. What's the advantage of growing up in Pharaoh's house? He has to go to the best schools. Best school, learns Egyptian. He he's literally becomes a high leading official in Egypt. But you know the story. He sees uh, an Egyptian and uh, Hebrew fighting. What's he do? Kills Egyptian. He right, thinks everything's good. Finds out that word is spreading on that. So he leaves and hangs out in the wilderness. We did 40 years here. And then we do 40 years in the wilderness. And then he's 80 years old. And while he's in the wilderness, he meets Yahweh God in a burning bush. And what does God tell him to do? Go back to Go back and talk to Go back Pharaoh. to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, you know there's a lot of back and forth. He half-heartedly agrees to do it in the end, but he does go. So God directly appoints him to this mission. It's not like he just saw a problem and rose up and said, you know what, there's a problem here. I think I'm going to try to fix this. Now, what happened? God called him out specifically to do the work. So he goes to Egypt. Of course, that's the Templex scenario. Eventually, they let them go. They cross the Red Sea somewhere. We're going to go with the historical position and just put Sinai there. And what happens at Mount Sinai after they cross the Red Sea? The Ten Commandments. They get the law. Then they're supposed to go into the Promised Land. Well, what do the people do? They keep sinning. Well, they send spies, remember, into the land. Right. The spies go up into the land, and they look at it, and they all come back. Part of the report's the same. And that, what, what part of the report was that? Everybody giants, agreed on this part. Giants in the land. It's awesome. That place is awesome. And then two of them say, let's go take it. And then 12 of them say what? Ten of them. No way. Sorry, sorry. Ten. My math is not working. So out of the 12, ten, two say, let's go do it. Ten say, not happening. The people say, all right, we're not going to do it. God punishes them. By doing what? Commanding that they will now live in the wilderness for how long? Forty more. Forty more years until what happens? So that generation That whole generation dies off. Alright, so in this thing, so imagine you've been saved, you're headed towards the promised land, but you're having to live in the wilderness. Think about how that's going to be a metaphor for New Testament purposes. It is, yes. Absolutely. All right? This is going to be significant to us as we go forward. So they, they're experiencing salvation because they're not in Egypt anymore. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're not in the promised land. But where's their heart set? Where's their mind? Or, let me change that. Where's their heart supposed to be set? Where's their mind set? What are they supposed to be meditating and dreaming about and focusing on while they're here? Oh, promised promise. land. This is where we're going. Going to the, the, the land of rest. That's the idea. We're going to rest from our wandering and make it to the promised land. So that's the lens the author of Hebrews is thinking about Moses from. So Moses led the people to the wilderness, but then what happened to Moses? Did he, did he take them all the way? No. And also, he didn't even, that generation he led out, he didn't get any of them up. 
So would you say Moses was successful or unsuccessful? Well, two, sorry. There are two. There are two that made it. In general, none of them made it. Okay, so we're using general terms. Um, including Moses. Moses himself also did not get to go. So how would you rate Moses then as a prophet if that's our scale? Meet standards. He's a fairy. <laughs> Meet standards. Not exceeds them. Yeah, two out of three. He, he got the people there. He didn't get specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of see where there's this, well, he was successful. He got them out of Egypt. He got them the law. He's a great prophet in that sense. Great things happen under his leadership, but he didn't take them all the way to the promised land. He didn't make it home with his people. So that's where this tension with Moses compared to Jesus is going to land. Now, with that in mind, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Heavenly calling. Let's pause on that. What is a heavenly calling? It's going to heaven. Salvation. Salvation is how we get that calling for sure. He, he means something a little more direct. I mean, it, it's not into that. It's not that that's wrong. It's just... So this was Old Testament story. Let's think about the New Testament story. If you tell someone you have a heavenly calling. Is that more like the like Great Commission kind of stuff? So, okay, so I've heard Great Commission kind of stuff, salvation. Let's just illustrate it out. So i got heaven up here. Then calling would be God calls out someone, right? To obviously to do something. But what's the end? Where's this going? Yeah, in the end, that calling is towards heaven. After all, you're a citizen of what? You're a citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of the kingdom to come. Um, we have an upward call. We have a forward-looking momentum. It's very important to Christianity that we pay attention to the thing at the end of the story. And you're going to see this very important in the way he, he does it. So Old Testament picture. We're going to make this picture better, but that's where we're at right now. <laughs> Heavenly calling. This picture's we'll call it the weak version. All right, let's keep going. So who's he talking to? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. It's Christians. This is just a way to refer to what we are. We're holy brothers, and we all share in the same calling. Nothing different in this regard. Same calling. Consider Jesus. That's our verb. So all of you Christians, think about Jesus. Meditate on something about Jesus. That's the commandment here. Think about him. That is, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, when you think about the word apostle, do you ever think of Jesus as an apostle? Not really. I mean, who do we think of? Paul, okay, Peter, the twelve. Or what made them apostles? They spoke with Jesus. They knew Jesus. All right, it's not just that they knew him. Pilate technically knew him. They with, were with him. They were called, okay, called by Jesus. Given authority. Um, from Jesus to do something. So in what sense is Jesus an apostle? God the Father sent him. 
One sent with authority. The most simplistic definition of apostle is just one sent with authority. And so Jesus is sent by the Father. Now he's going to make a parallel. Was Moses sent by God? Was he an apostle? Yeah, in a certain sense, we could call Moses an apostle. Jesus is also an apostle, and he's also the high priest of our confession. And their confession is shorthand for really our, our, our trust in the gospel. So it includes the whole package of belief plus the belief itself. All right, who was faithful to him who appointed him? Now remember, Hebrew sometimes is wordy and not direct and uses a lot of pronouns um, because that's what good Greek grammar does. English grammar frowns upon this. This wouldn't be good English. Um, so instead of saying, who was faithful to him who appointed him? All right, let's try to clean up some of those pronouns. Who did what in verse 2? So God appointed Jesus. And what does it tell us about Jesus? He was faithful. So Jesus was faithful to do the thing God the Father appointed him to do. That's the guy we're talking about. So let's consider Jesus, that is the apostle, that is the high priest, that is the one who was faithful to the thing God called him to do. That guy. Let's consider him. As just as, second half of verse 2, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So Moses was faithful in God's house. I'm going to use a metaphor here. So the house is a metaphor for what in the Old Testament? What was Moses faithful in? What's, what's the house? Okay, so God's word. it's not wrong to think tabernacle, I mean, because that is the house of the Lord. Right, but he, he is blowing up the, the illustration larger than that. It'll be real clear in a minute. It's the people. So think of the New Testament. When we say church, you know, a lot of times we, even in normal lingo, and even when we know better, we still use church to refer to the building, right? But historically, biblically, that's never what that word meant. It did not mean building in any sense. That took a thousand years of church history to get that meaning connected to the word. What did it mean in the Bible? People. And several times we're called the household of God. And later in this very paragraph, we'll be called the house of God. So in this particular case, Moses was faithful in God's house, that is, in his people. So Moses was faithful. So does the author of Hebrews have a negative view of Moses? No, not at all. Moses is a great, wonderful Old Testament character. He's just not Jesus. So it's still positive. It's but he's nothing compared to Jesus. So Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So how much glory did Moses get in the Old Testament? A lot. Like almost all of it. Like God got glory, and then if you include a human at all. In any conversation about glory, Moses is next. He's next in line. I mean, we talked about it Sunday in 2 Corinthians. What what was Moses known for with regard to glory? His face. The face glowing. Literally. I mean, he, he saw God. He's, he's the one who got to have that moment with God. God, show me your glory. He didn't and actually like, see his face, did he? 
Well, he, he saw a manifestation of God. He, he, no, you can't see God's face because yes. he doesn't have one. Okay, is that why we can't see it? Because he doesn't have one? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> it's works. God doesn't... To see something is for it to be finite. You cannot see the infinite. Okay. So, so God can't be seen in that sense. There'd be no way we could see him as yeah. a body, as yeah. a man. Yeah, he manifested himself to Moses... And Moses got they see an actual manifestation of God right. in his glory. Okay. Yeah. So and he started to hide him in the cleft of the rocks that passed by and all that. He got to see the backside of it. It's a very complicated scenario. And this was only a manifestation. This wasn't God. It wasn't directly. Really God. You know. So just imagine. So Jesus has more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. What's going on with that comparison? All right, so you you built a house. You know, the house could be impressive, but uh, technically, what are you impressed with? The person who did it. You're, You're impressed with their product. Well, think about creation. When we say the heavens declare the glory of God... I mean, we are, in a sense, saying that the heavens are glorious, certainly. And we go to the Grand Canyon and say, that's glorious. But if you're thinking about it from a true Christian perspective, that's a stepping stone thought. You think, wow, this is amazing. What's step two? God Uh, made it. He's amazing. Wow. That he made this. We even reverse it and go small and think about the intricacies of the universe. And it's overwhelmed. That thing is amazing that God made it that way. And wow, I mean, he came up with that. This is his idea. He did it and just a, as a, not really the snap of the finger, but the speech off the lips of his mouth. And he just says, let there be whatever it is. And all of this amazing stuff comes out. Same scenario here. So Moses then, he's not the house. What was Moses in the house? Well, he's not the, he's not the builder. Because who gets the most glory in the house illustration? The builder. The person who builds the house gets the most illust- most glory. So you already know who he's going to say the builder is. That's going to be God. All right, so what role do you think Moses plays? He's, what did you say? Um, so I'm going to go with steward. So if we have a mansion, because this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, a thousand square foot house. We're talking about an estate sort of house. We're talking about the chief butler, right? This is, this is what Moses is. He runs the house. He didn't build the house. Is there glory in running a, a really beautiful, large house? Yes. Sure. A lot of glory. Not the same glory as being the guy that owns the house, though. The guy that built the house. That's a completely different... Level like if you watch the Downton Abbey series, you know. Oh, oh what's his name? I've already lost his name. Which, the, the butler. What, the, the the mother. The butler. The, oh yeah, I got Carson. It. Yeah. You know. That was so. He's, he's a cool character. I mean, he, he manages this home, but he's not the grandfather's. I mean, he, he sleeps a different part of the house. There's a different level of glory. All right, weak illustration, but y'all can follow. Okay. All right, where where what verse are we in? All right, verse 4. So, for every house is built by someone, 
but the builder of all things is God. So in this sense, builder of all things is more reference to creation in general, but it's going to come back down. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So what role did Moses play according to that? A servant to make what happen? Made everything come to pass that God wants. Look at how he words it in verse 1. To testify. So this is a servant who's going to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So in this case, prophet, prophet in the foretelling sense. Maybe better to say in the foreshadowing sense. So Moses is going to do this thing with God's house that's going to lay the framework for how we think about what Jesus is doing with God's house. This is Moses' role. He's a servant in the house. He's the chief servant, we could say. He's the butler. He's the steward. He's, He's in charge in the house in the Old Testament. But he's neither the builder nor what other option do we have? If you don't own the house and you're not the chief servant, what other glorious position could there be in the house? Occupy. Well, who occupies the house? The family. So if you're not the owner, what's the next most glorious position? Builder. Well, the son is the what? The heir. The one who's going to inherit. Follow what I'm saying? That's what son is, but that's, that's the point. All right, so... So that was Moses as a servant. Oh, sorry, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So is there more glory than that? Considerably more. And then he's going to set up a statement that it's going to take him a chapter and a half to explain. So we're going to do the best we can to summarize the statement um, just at the beginning so that as we walk through the next chapter and a half, of Hebrews, this paragraph makes sense. Okay, so this paragraph is setting up what he's going to spend a chapter and a half arguing. So he's just stating it here. So we are his house if. You see that? There's a condition. Is everybody's God's is everybody God's house? No. No? Hmm? And Paul uses lingo very consistently throughout the New Testament. We are the building, we are the dwelling, we are the body we are the temple a lot of building lingo body metaphor as well not everybody's part of that only those who are what only those who are saved only the very first verse remember only the only the holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling but he's gonna say the if in a very different way in verse six so this is how you know um you are the house of god this is how you know if you hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, hope is a very interesting word. When we use the word hope in English, we use it almost opposite the meaning it has in the Bible. So if I say, okay, you know I wouldn't say this, but hypothetically if I did say this, I hope the saints win the Super Bowl. What am I expressing? A desire. A wish, a desire, an unrealistic expectation. 
Impossibility. I was trying to throw out a, Okay, a possibility. No, uh, impossibility. An impossibility. <laughs> um, or what if I say, you know, it's getting later on in the season, and I'm like, man, I'm still holding out hope. What do I mean? It, it definitely doesn't look like it's going to happen, but I know that, man, it, I want it to. I want it to happen. Um, that's how we usually use the word hope. It's kind of a wished for sort of idea. That's not what hope means um, in the Bible. It's more of a confidence in a specific conclusion. So if you know the destination and you know it's guaranteed, you would call that destination your hope. So hope usually means, as a noun in the New Testament, heaven. And I just heaven as though the, the place you go immediately when you die. So that's also very hopeful, and we have hope because of that. But more specifically, the final heaven, which is what? That's where heaven and earth come together. That's the hope. That's the hope that we are looking for. Now, if you read Hebrews well, you're going to find that Hebrews is we are weaving the resurrection, and I mean the future resurrection, that blessed hope, that new heaven, new earth, new body, new creation. He's weaving that into everything. And so you probably you probably are familiar, probably more than any other part of Hebrews, with uh, chapter 11. Uh, what, what's Hebrews chapter 11? It's the hall of faith. And what is it that these people have faith in? Sometimes this is mixed. But it's faith in God that he's going to do a certain very specific coming. thing. Resurrection. The resurrection. It is the resurrection specifically that the hall of faith is about. Now we'll cover that real clearly when we're in chapter 11. But that's where we're pointing. So what he's saying here is if you're going to be a member of God's house, there's an if. You're God's house if you hold fast your confidence and your boasting in that hope of heaven. What does that say? Think about this as a timeline. So here, heaven was up here the whole time, but here in the end, heaven descends to earth. And we'll call this new creation. No more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. Everything is restored. We'll do life again, but perfect and to the fullest. And we're here. And it's like everything but that. There's suffering, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's grief, there's loss. This is the heavenly calling. This is Paul's lingo. He uses this all the time in Philippians. Where's he set his eyes? Towards the end. He says until he can attain, this is exact lingo, until he can attain the resurrection of the dead. Well, what's he mean? That's the biblical lingo for the new heavens, new earth, that stage. I'm looking forward to that. My day, now he'll die at some point, and body down here in the grave. Spirit, however, goes up. Well, I guess you still look like a person. I don't know. Now you're in heaven with the Lord, so you're in two places, but you're still on that trajectory looking forward for that day. 
In the book of Revelation, you have saints in this state. What, when, how long? Can't wait to see this happen. Excited about this happening. We want to see this happening. Romans 8 says that creation itself knows this day is coming, and it's getting excited and eager about it. Can't wait to see the redemption of the sons of God. This moment in time. So here's how the author of Hebrews, he just set up something incredibly bold. Your God's house, if you make it from here to here, you're not God's house if you don't make it. Think of, remember, what's the context of Hebrews? Who's he talking to? Jews. Persecuted Jews who are being tempted to commit what specific sin? What's it called? I, I'm hearing some low-level ones. Apostasy. Turning away from the faith, going back to the Old Testament. So by definition... He's excluding from God's house anyone who commits that sin. You see what he's doing? He's setting this up. You don't get in over here if you don't hold fast your confidence to the end. Like some manuscripts change the wording and say to the end in this passage. Just in church tradition that was updated sometimes for clarification. But that's what he's talking about. You have to hold your confidence firm all the way to be a child in God's house. So he's defining Christianity, his house, by its end result, not by what it looks like right now. So hypothetically, you could be in the house right now, but not really be a member of the house. And you walk away... You're not part of the new creation on this other side. Now, we're going to have a theological tension that's going to arise, especially about the time we get to chapter 6, and he summarizes this. He's going to defend this position for several verses, for a chapter and a half, and then he's going to give us that strong um, apostasy chapter. You all know what I'm talking about, the paragraph in Ephesians, sorry, Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6, that if you fall away, it's impossible to renew again to repentance those who have... That's going to be the climax of his argument. This is a one-way street. And uh, it's going to be very interesting. I can't give away everything right now. But here's this definition. You're a Christian if you make it here. So what would be the reverse definition? If you don't make it here. Not a Christian if you don't hold fast. In fact, that word hold fast is going to show up continuously in the book of Hebrews. It's always going to define Christianity. They're the ones who hold fast. All right, let's bring it back to the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a quick survey of how he's going to argue this. So this is really what next week's about, but I don't want to leave you there. Y'all figure that work? Okay. So here's what he's going to say. Where did Moses go wrong? He saved God's people out of the promised land, I mean out of Egypt, but what went wrong? He did not get them to the promised land. But if Jesus is a better high priest, a better apostle, a better savior, a better sacrificial system, a better messenger, a better fill in the blank, what is he going to be able to do with God's people? Not only can he get them out of sin, he's going to get them out of the wilderness and into the promised land. 
this is the specific thing that makes Jesus the better everything, is that his results are consistent and perfect. So, okay, we're going to leave Hebrews for just a second. I know I had filled in any blanks. I just got the talking, but I will come back and fill those in. I want to show you a verse in John chapter 6. And Jesus using similar lingo. I just want you to see what he says. This is the I'm the bread of life passage. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. I'm going to specifically read verse 38. John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Well, in the illustration, Jesus is saying, God sent me to everybody God gives me. He's going to do what? Get them to the wilderness? No. He's going to do what? Raise them up on the last day. Our promised land. That's God's will for him. Is he going to succeed in accomplishing God's will for him? Yes. So everyone the Father gives him, he's going to do what with? He's going to get him there. He is going to cross over Jordan with them in his train. Guaranteed. This is the difference between Jesus and Moses. Moses had people fall out in the wilderness. Lost a whole generation. Didn't even himself get to make it. Jesus is going to cross the Red Sea going to cross the wilderness, and he's going to bring us safely home to the promised land. And we can rest our strongest assurance and steadfast hope that this is where we're going if we are his house. That's what Hebrews is about. Okay, let's fill in some blanks. I'm sorry. I just got going. All right, so <laughs> Moses, Old Testament picture of God's salvation. So God appointed Moses to lead his people. Moses was faithful to lead, it should be them, lead them out of Egypt. Moses provided the opportunity for God's people to go to the promised land. Moses provided the opportunity for God's people to go to the promised land. The generation that disobeyed Moses, God's representative, did not get to enter that promised land. Those who were faithful, which was the next generation, and that word faithful is loosely defined, did get to enter the promised land. So take that picture. Let's look at Jesus, the perfect picture of God's salvation. So God appointed Jesus to be the minister, minister, sorry, I didn't proofread this, (laughs) to be the minister of the new covenant. Jesus was perfectly obedient to his mission and fully successful in his mission. Do you see the difference between him and Moses at that point? Jesus provides the opportunity also, we'll see that clearly in the next part of the chapter, for people to enter the final promised land. We're going to get this lingo as long as it's called today. Do not harden your hearts, but trust in the Lord. And Jesus will take his whole household to the promised land. Guaranteed. Jesus will take his whole household to the promised land. So that's the setup for his 
Sabbath rest argument. So next week we'll talk about how we can experience the final Sabbath rest, which is Hebrews lingo for the promised land. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. It will be good. Any questions? No, we don't know where all they camped. We, we have some names and spots. Unfortunately, a lot of the names and spots, we don't even know what those spots are. We know some of them are, but, you know, they could. All over the place. Yeah. They didn't move every day, did Yeah, times they would stay a year somewhere. Not moved at all. So they just had to be ready to move because the Shekinah glory picked up. <laughs> they packed up and headed out of town. So. All right, any other questions? I don't have a question, but I have an update. Okay. On a lane. Yes, she was texting me. Okay. So um, you weren't paying attention, but we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got all my stuff. She said that um, she goes and the bandage on her leg comes off Friday. Okay. Um, and she's hoping that it doesn't go back on, but... Her leg was way worse than mine, and they did three wraps on my It didn't leg. look good when I saw it yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I just pray that they do what's best for her and okay. her not talking out of anything. I'm going to be strong and stand up. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Well, let me uh, pray for us. So, oh, Ted. We're, we're going oh. to move the chairs to yeah. the side, just stack the chairs on the side, leave the tables up because... Blood drop, right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah. So let's just move all the chairs out of the way. Leave tables. Yeah. Leave the tables. All right. So move here. all the chairs to the side. Yeah. We'll leave everything else. And uh, thank you for helping. We're out a few minutes early, so you don't have an excuse to leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We pray you bless our study of Scripture. Help us to think about Christ. Um, let us consider Him, who is the great Apostle, the great High Priest, the one who was faithful to do everything you appointed him to do. Let us consider him and let us imitate him as he fixed his eyes on the joy set before him and endured the shame of the cross. Help us to endure the difficulties of life now, the persecution, the suffering, the physical ailments. God, I pray that we could endure it like Christ endured his so that you would get glory, but that we would come out on the other side experiencing the glory of the new age. So God, I pray that our faith would be boldly in the resurrection and that we would walk faithfully daily to what you call us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.